Now to get serious, let me just ask you a question. If someone was doing a survey and asked you this question, what would your response be? And feel free to to give the things that pop to your mind. What is it that you most want to experience in life? Happiness? Happiness? Joy? Love? Watching your kids grow? Pretty content crowd, it sounds like. I was asking myself that question, and it came to my mind that it was probably about a year ago I was sharing with you a conversation I had with a man who I've come to know quite well in his family over the last 20 years. He owns a hotel in Niagara Falls. You've probably heard me mention him before. Uh, been staying at his place probably 40 nights in the course of a week, I st- or in the course of a year. Uh, I stay at his hotel, and just about this time last year, his wife had died to cancer. So you may remember me telling you that story. Uh, and it was only a couple days after she had passed away. They hadn't even had the funeral yet. Uh, I was in Niagara Falls, went to the hotel, expected to see another staff member running the desk. And here Lorenzo was behind the desk. And uh, I had the conversation with him. Like, Lorenzo, what are you doing? Like, your wife has just passed away. You don't need to be here. Uh, and his response was, well, what else do I have to do? Life sucks. Uh, and... Uh, My conversation with him then and over the course of this last year, three months after his wife passed away, his father passed away, uh, and uh, in all those conversations, there's such despair uh, and such helplessness, uh, and he has concluded that life sucks, and he's got nothing else to do but sit and run his hotel. Uh, And I think I shared with you the conversation that I had with a nurse at uh, the Markham Stovall Hospital just before Christmas. I go in for a blood treatment and happens to take place in the chemo ward. Uh, And one of the nurses who uh, I've come to know over the last few years of getting these treatments uh, came to me with tears in her eyes and just saying she needed a break because two of the ladies that were in getting chemo treatment uh, were really just getting it for comfort for the last couple of weeks that they had uh, left to live. And and neither one of them was expected to last until Christmas. And and, and this nurse just had had enough uh, and just wanted to vent to me. Uh, just how helpless life really was. Uh, and, and it's true. It's a reality we face every day. There are so many hurting, suffering people. There's so much people who find themselves in the midst of real troubling circumstances. And, and we've talked about it over the last weeks. I mean, we can go to the newspaper. We can watch the news. Every day we read of the suffering and the hurt and the tragedy and the conflict that's going on in this world. But the reality is that our experience of that doesn't have to just be from the newspapers or far away from news reports across the world. But all of us know people, sometimes way too close to home, people we work with, people who are uh, in our extended family, people that live within uh, the same house as us or maybe us ourselves. And we're hurting. And we're suffering. And some of, us, some of us find ourselves facing tragedies and turmoil and conflict and, and anxiety. We find ourselves uh, in, in relationships that are tense. We find ourselves struggling with finances. We, we find ourselves with uncertain employment uh, situations. No wonder that survey question that I asked you at the very start uh, was asked in the USA in the top three answers uh, that were given is what do I want most in life? was love, joy, and peace. For the last four or five weeks, we've been looking at 
those last hours that Jesus spent with his disciples in the upper room. And several times we've tried to imagine, we've tried to put ourselves in the sandals of the disciples and what they must have been experiencing prior to the upper room, as they were sitting with Jesus in the upper room, uh, as they were going to witness his, his betrayal and his arrest uh, and his, his beatings, his persecutions and, and his crucifixion, what must have been going on in the minds of those disciples? And we know that they were troubled. They were perplexed. They suffered great despair. They would totally understand the answers that were given in that survey. They wanted peace. They wanted to experience joy. We've also tried to put ourselves into the mind of Jesus. What must Jesus have been thinking? He knew what was going to take place. He knew the things that were going to happen. He knew the arrest. He knew the beatings. He knew the ridicule. He knew the crucifixion. We think we have trouble. Imagine what was going through the mind of Jesus. I know if it was me, I know what I would have been thinking. How can I maintain the peace? How, how can I look out for myself? How can I avoid the suffering and the trouble that possibly could be coming my way? And yet what we've seen week after week as we've looked at this series, Second Story Living, Lessons from the Upper Room, we see that, that what is foremost on the mind of Jesus hours before he is going to be arrested and beaten and put to death. In fact, his preoccupation is with his disciples. And he wants his disciples and his followers that follow to know that he cares for them. And that he wants to leave these wonderful promises with them. And he wants his disciples and us who follow to learn the secret of how he lived day by day, moment by moment, in utter trust and dependence on his Father. And so we've seen some of those lessons that followers of Jesus express their love for others and for, for God through humble acts of service. And that followers of Jesus love each other. And it gives us this beautiful, magnetic picture of the church and what it is to be like. And we saw that the followers of Jesus trust in the, in the person and in the promises and the presence of Jesus. And then last week we saw that followers of Jesus are marked a core characteristic of a follower of Jesus is that they love Jesus and it's made evident through their obedience. Jesus wants his disciples and his followers to know that they are infinitely loved. And that what's happening and what's going to happen and what's going to result from what happens is all because of this great love that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, the triune God, have for his followers. And as we come to our text, as we conclude chapter 14 uh, in the Upper Room Discourse, we're going to see that Jesus wants his followers. He wants his disciples to experience and to have solidified in them his peace. 
A peace that comes from experiencing and realizing an unshakable faith. A peace that comes from experiencing true joy. A peace that only comes from his peace that he wants to share with his followers. For you see, another lesson from the Upper Room Discourse is that followers of Jesus are to be marked by peace. I want you to turn uh, to John chapter 14, and we're going to look at the last uh, few verses in this section of the Upper Room Discourse. I want to read the verses to you, uh, and then I want to set the stage. And uh, you're going to notice something this morning. We're going to kind of go uh, almost backwards with the verses uh, as we go through these last uh, five or six verses. But bear with me. There's a, a, a reason for the order that we are going to follow. So John 14, verse 25. And Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I'll not say much more to you, but for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come, now let us leave. So let me set the stage. Two things that I want us to notice, to understand that are pivotal uh, in appreciating this passage uh, and the first thing is found in verses 30 and 31. So we really are starting uh, with the last verses. This uh, Thursday, I had the wonderful experience of a root canal. So my, my, my tooth does feel much better than it did uh, last Sunday. And I was sitting in the chair, and after getting these three gigantic freezing needles, the doctor, the dentist left for 15 minutes. And, and I was left uh, with a student that was observing the root canal. Uh, and so while my mouth and tongue were freezing, I had a conversation with her. And she was explaining that she's been just through um, uh, quite a, a, an extensive period of, of teaching. And now they're out observing. Uh, and then her next exercise would be to actually go into a dentist's office and begin practice. And I thought, hey, well, that's typical of how people are taught today. Uh, often we, we learn theory uh, and then we apply it. Paul's writings are very similar. He teaches us, then he applies his teaching. Uh, in, in a lot of uh, college courses, there's clinical than practical. Uh, and, and it's the same thing here. Um, Jesus wants his disciples, who are, who are in the safe confines of the upper room, he wants them to understand something before they experience something. And it's in verse 30 and 31. And Jesus says, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And what Jesus wants his disciples to understand, because very soon they're going to be leaving the upper room and they're going to go through the garden and then Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested and he's going to be punished and he's going to be crucified. 
And Jesus wants his disciples to understand, and he wants his followers to understand. While we're in the confines of a fairly safe place, before we go out the doors into the real world that's filled with trouble and opposition, he wants his disciples to understand this. That what is going to happen is not because he's being coerced. He's not going to the garden. He's not going to meet up with Judas and be betrayed. He's not going to be arrested by the soldiers. He's not going to be beaten because he's under coercion and there's nothing he can do about it. He wants his disciples to understand that Satan does not rule this night. God is in charge. God rules the night. Jesus says something that's very critical. He says... The prince of the world is coming. Satan is alive, he's active, and he is at work. But he's not in charge. Satan has no power over a sinless man. Jesus says, Satan has no hold over me. Your Bible may say, he has no claim on me. It literally means he has nothing in me. There's no chink uh, in, in the righteousness of Jesus that Satan can lay hold of. He has no power over Jesus. God rules the night. And so we say, well, if that's the case, then, then why does Jesus allow himself to be betrayed? Why does he allow himself to be arrested? Why does he allow himself to go through all of this if it's not under coercion? If God's in charge, why are all these things going to happen? And look what Jesus says in 31. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is a demonstration of love and of obedience. Satan and evil are not the explanation for the cross. Obedience motivated by love is. And that's the greatest demonstration of the lesson that we learned last week. That followers of Jesus are marked by love that's evidenced by their obedience. And here's Jesus saying, all this is happening because I'm demonstrating the love that I have for my Father and doing what He has commanded me to do. So the first thing we need to understand as we set the context is that God rules the night. Everything is happening according to his plan. And the second thing I want us to notice is what takes place in in verses 25 and 26. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. We've already talked about the mindset of the disciples. Their minds must have been pretty muddled. They had no full understanding of what was taking place. They didn't really get what Jesus was doing. They didn't really get what he was saying. They didn't understand what was going to take place over the next 72 hours. And yet, The text that that we are studying in this series, our New Testament, 
is written by or influenced by these very befuddled disciples. And you would think that that would cause us to question the reliability of what we're reading. But Jesus gives us the answer to that concern. I'm sending my spirit. And he's going to help you to remember, to recall the things I have said, and to give you understanding. Why? So that you can write them down. So that the followers that come century after century after century will understand and will know the things that I've said and will be able to understand the lessons that I wanted you in the upper room to listen to and to learn and the same lessons that I want my followers for the centuries to come to understand and come to grasp. John Piper says that we should read the Gospels with expectancy. Because these are the words that that Jesus wanted to have recorded. These are the lessons that he wants us to understand. These are the words that he has for us. These are the truths. These are the promises. This is the peace that he wants for us. You know, our family is trying to do the, it's probably going to be the Bible in two years, but we're trying to do this daily Bible reading. and, And the very first day, you're in Genesis 1 and then Matthew 1. And we're going through the genealogy and all I want to do is, Allison was reading, was like, just skip Matthew 1 and go to Matthew 2. And then I think of that. No, Jesus had a reason that Matthew 1 is recorded. And if we can't see it at first glance, then we need to look and to dig. What is it that Jesus wants to understand and to learn and to glean from even the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1? He sent his spirit to bring to mind for these disciples who were befuddled and confused what it is he said and to give them understanding so that we can learn from it 2,000 years later. So the stage is set. God rules the night. He's totally sovereign. He's in control. Things are happening according to his plan and he has sent his spirit. And one of the reasons he has sent his spirit is so that the disciples and us 2,000 years later would know the words of Jesus and that we'd be able to understand the things that he's trying to say. And in our text this morning, he wants us to understand and to experience and to have solidified in our experience three things that culminate in peace. And that first thing that Jesus wants for his disciples and he wants for us is that we would have an unshakable faith. One of the the reasons I wanted to do this series just before Easter, obviously it's these last words before Jesus is crucified. And and the other thing that hit me this year is that Easter is coming so quick. And one of the things I love about Easter is one of the themes that we, all year long we talk about Jesus dying. Why, what does it mean that Jesus died? Why did Jesus have to die? But sometimes we f- forget to mention the fact he rose again. And I love the fact that at Easter we always make it a point to talk about the importance and the meaning of the resurrection. Because quite frankly, it wasn't enough for Jesus to live, to leave a good example, to say profound calming things, and then to die, and then not rise again. Jesus claimed that he would rise again. He linked all sorts of promises and truths to his ability to rise again. He staked his whole reputation on his raising from the dead. 
And if Jesus died and he rose from the dead, then that is the cornerstone of Christianity. But if he didn't rise from the dead, it's Christianity's greatest flaw. If Jesus died and rose again, then it's the most significant miracle and it's at the core of our faith. But if he didn't rise again, then Christianity collapses and we're all deceived and we might as well all leave right now. But what gives me such an unshakable faith are all the reasons why I know that Jesus rose from the dead. The fact that he was dead that there was an empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts, the great change in in the disciples who ran away and were hiding and then then were totally transformed when they saw and, and met the risen Christ. What What does the resurrection mean? It means that everything Jesus claimed about himself is true. He did what he said he would do. He demonstrated and validated everything that he said about himself. And this is to awaken and strengthen our faith. When we read of the things that Jesus did. But even more, it's to awaken and strengthen our faith. The fact that Jesus predicted these things before they happened. And that's what he's doing uh, in in the text uh, this morning. In verse 29, look what Jesus says. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. And the the point of his prediction right there is he wanted his disciples to know who was in charge that night. It wasn't the cast of characters that they might have been assuming. It wasn't going to be Judas who was in charge. It wasn't the soldiers. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jewish religious leaders. It wasn't the crowd. God was in charge. He ruled the night. Jesus said earlier in John 10, uh, verses 17 and 18. He says, my father loves me because I lay down my life and then I take it back up again. And this life that I lay down, I do it willingly. No one will take my life from me. And I do the same when I rise again. And what does that mean to us? If Easter proves John 10 and 17 and 18 to be true, that Jesus gave his life willingly and he took it up willingly. If Easter proves that to be true, then I don't know about you, but I believe everything Jesus claimed about himself. And I think it's more than logical that you and I would offer our life to his care and to his control. Satan and evil didn't rule that night and don't have to rule any night after that night. Regardless of the trouble, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the suffering, regardless of what our experiences might be, we can have an unshakable faith knowing God is in control. He rules the night and that Jesus is sovereign over what's taking place. He wants us to experience an unshakable faith. The next thing that he wants us to experience is true joy. Understanding why we can have joy even in the midst of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, I was thinking as I was uh, on this point, 
Lauren was two uh, when we had to bring her in for a very simple procedure at the Ajax Hospital. She was having issues with her eye, uh, and so she was going to go in for a, a tear duct operation. And I can remember bringing her to the Ajax Hospital, knowing this was a simple routine that had been done thousands and thousands of times. Nothing to worry about. And so we went in, Alice and I, brave with our little princess, into the hospital, gave her to the nurse, sat in the waiting room, and then the moment that, that, that I'll never forget, before the operation, the nurse brings Lauren back out to us. And here she is, standing, you know, that high, in this cute little hospital gown, with her one eye all bloodshot. That's why she was in for the operation. And from that moment, I forgot everything about what I knew about tear duct operations. This was my little girl. And from that moment, until I saw her come back out with a patch over her eye, I was convinced that she was never coming back, that the worst was going to happen. This was going to be the case that's written up in in journals to follow uh, of how the doctors messed up. Verse 29, sorry, verse 28. My experience, I think, is kind of what the disciples were going through. Jesus says to them, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. I think the disciples heard all that, but they blocked everything out past those first words. You heard me say, I'm going away. That's all the disciples heard. That's all that they understood. That's what left them perplexed and and quite agitated and concerned. Jesus was leaving. This one for whom they had given up everything was leaving them. And they couldn't see beyond their plight. They couldn't see beyond their loss. They couldn't see beyond their anxiety. Everything else that Jesus said in that verse kind of gets lost. All they heard is, I'm going away. They didn't understand what the cross, what Jesus was going to go through, meant for them. And what it meant for Jesus. They didn't realize that Jesus' departure by the way of the cross was a great reason for them to rejoice. For you see, Jesus departing from them by the way of the cross meant for them, and it means for us, forgiveness. It means redemption. It, 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 remains free, it means freedom. It means eternal life. It means the receiving of the Holy Spirit and all that the Holy Spirit would bring with, with him. They didn't understand what it meant for Jesus. For Jesus, it meant the fulfillment of the good news of the gospel. It meant a defeat of Satan, victory over sin and death. It meant an end to his earthly humiliation and his exaltation where he'd be back at the right hand of his father in glory. It meant that he would validate everything that he claimed about himself. He would demonstrate his love for his father through obedience. It meant that he could show that God ruled the night. That as we read in Isaiah 53, everything that God had planned was happening according to his plan. And we can have that joy. 
Joy despite our circumstances. Joy in the midst of trouble. Knowing that Jesus has suffered and died and risen for our freedom, for our redemption, for our eternal home, our eternal hope. And that he's exalted and that one day everyone's going to kneel before him and declare that he is Lord. Lord of lords. And in that we can find joy. God rules the night. All authority has been given to Jesus. And then we come to to the third thing that Jesus wants to experience. And and I think as we boil these three things, uh, we we can land on that one thing that Jesus wants us, us to experience and have solidified in our daily walk. And that is peace. And in verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. We need to understand the difference between the peace that the world offers and the peace that Jesus offers. The peace the world offers is temporary, it's external. Often the world defines peace and offers a peace that involves removing ourselves from circumstances. So there's great peace in leaving the city and going to the country or leaving on a one-week holiday holiday to a, a tropical island. Peace comes through buying something. Peace comes through ingesting something. Maybe it's a comfort food. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's a drug. Often the peace that the world offers is defined as the removal of conflict. The removal of opposition. It's defined as trouble-free living. It's defined by the experience of good circumstances. But we all know that's temporary. And it doesn't last and it only takes one hiccup. And that peace is gone. And Jesus says, I don't give the peace that the world offers. In fact, the world doesn't even understand my peace. The peace I offer, it's not external. It's not temporary. It's internal. It's a heart peace. It's a sense of well-being and security despite the circumstances. It's the peace that can be experienced even in the midst of trouble. And Jesus says, it's not a peace like the world gives. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Jesus isn't picking up a mixing bowl and grabbing a bunch of ingredients and mixing up this peace that he's created to offer us. He says, I want you to have my peace. I want you to enter into my peace. And so you say, well, what peace could you be experiencing, Jesus? You know what's going to happen. You're going to be arrested and beaten and killed very shortly. And the peace that Jesus offers us is the very peace that he enjoys with his father. And what Jesus wants his disciples and his followers and everyone to understand is that what Jesus is about to do for them, 
if accepted through faith, will allow them to enter into that very same peace with his Father. A peace that's experienced several ways. The Bible tells us of the peace with God. And a passage we often turn to here at Auburn is Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, we learn that, that, that while we were yet sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies of God, in hostility because of our sin to God, God sent Jesus to die on the cross. And I love Revela- or sorry, Romans 5 verses 1 and, and I think 2 here. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Our past, our sins, our failures, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, they're all dealt with. They're all forgiven. And we have an eternal hope greater than any trouble this world can throw at us. And that should bring peace to our heart. We can have peace with God. And then we can have the peace of God. And I want you to turn back in your Bible just a couple of pages. We're on John 14. Flip back to John 10, verse 33. Not verse 33. Wrong verse. I want you to pass forward. Look ahead, sorry. John 16, verse 33. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. But this is a verse, if you've got a pen and you've got your Bible, underline it. It is a life verse. In fact, if you're using the Pew Bible, underline John 16, verse 33. If you're using your phone, somehow underline it. Or bring your Bible next week. Support a guy in the printing industry. Underline John 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. Sorry, you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We can have the peace of God, knowing that regardless of our circumstances, Jesus is sovereign over our circumstances. There are no accidents. There's nothing that happens that Jesus is going, whoops, never saw that happening. Jesus can use our troubles and the situations that we find ourselves to grow us, to strengthen us, to mold us, to glorify himself in, to advance his purposes in. We can have peace with God and we can experience and live in the peace of God. And then we can have peace with each other. A peace that restores broken relationships. A peace that removes all the barriers. That makes us realize that we are on level ground as we stand before these emblems. You know, there are people in here, I think of Chris and Greg and others. I don't even understand their past. I grew up in the church. I've been in all the things that a good church boy should do. But when we come in here and we stand before these emblems, Greg and Chris and those who come from the different ways of life that I ever experienced and some of you have experienced, we are all the same. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. We are sinners in need of redemption and justification. 
We are children of God. We are the family of God. And we can live at peace with each other because we're brothers and we're sisters. I want to close with the last sentence in this. And Brian in two weeks is going to pick up uh, in the upper room discourse that, that now becomes the garden discourse. It's a verse that often is overlooked. But I want to leave it as a, as, as a challenge. Jesus says to his disciples, after sharing with them these, what he, he wants them to experience, this peace. He says, come now. Let us leave. And I don't know if there's someone here this morning and you're going, well, where do I find this peace? This peace, this unshakable faith, this true joy is found nowhere other than in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here this morning. That's why we do church. That's why we learn so that we can share. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And if you don't know him this morning, you're not ready to leave. And we encourage you to talk to someone this morning. In fact, as the praise team comes up and and sings a song for us, Ben's near the back. He's our pastor of care. Just get up and walk to the back because you want to deal with it now. And I know that Ben would love to talk to you. But what about the rest of us? Jesus is going to take his disciples out into the garden and they're going to experience trouble they'd never seen before. And we're going to go out of this place today into a world that's filled with trouble like we've never experienced before. Are we ready to leave? Do we have that unshakable faith? Do we experience that true joy? Do we know the peace of God that he wants us to live in and to walk through? And if you don't know that, we would love you to talk to us. Again, as leaders here, that's what we want more than anything for you, to walk strongly in your faith that, so that those experiences would be real for you.